Joshua chapter 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Now King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had captured Ai and completely destroyed it, defeating Ai and its king as he had Jericho and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were living among them. So Adonai Zedek and his people were greatly alarmed, because Gibeon was a large city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were warriors. Therefore, King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem sent word to King Hoham of Hebron, King Piram of Jarmuth, King Japhia of Lachish, and King Geber of Eglon, saying, Come up and help me. We will attack Gibeon, because they have made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. So the five Amorite kings, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces, advanced with all their army, besieged Gibeon, and fought against it. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Don't give up on your servants. Come quickly and save us. Help us, for all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua and all his troops, including all his best soldiers, came from Gilgal. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. So Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them through the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth Horon all the way to Azekah, and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon over the valley of Ijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jashar? For the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man, because the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Now the five defeated kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makedah. It was reported to Joshua the five kings have been found. They are hiding in the cave at Makedah. Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and station men by it to guard the kings. But as for the rest of you, don't stay there. Pursue your enemies and attack them from behind. Don't let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has handed them over to you. So Joshua and the Israelites finished inflicting a terrible slaughter on them until they were destroyed, although a few survivors ran away to the fortified cities. The people returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makedah, and no one dared to threaten the Israelites. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings to me out of there. That is what they did. They brought the five kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon to Joshua out of the cave. When they had brought the kings to him, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the military commanders who had accompanied him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So the commanders came forward and put their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous. For the Lord will do this to all the enemies you fight. After this, Joshua struck them down and executed them. He hung their bodies on five trees 
And they were there until evening. At sunset, Joshua commanded that they be taken down from the trees and thrown into the cave where they had hidden. Then large stones were placed against the mouth of the cave, and the stones are still there today. On that day, Joshua captured Makeda and struck it down with the sword, including its king. He completely destroyed it and everyone in it, leaving no survivors. So he treated the king of Makeda as he had the king of Jericho. Joshua and all Israel with him crossed from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. The Lord also handed it and its king over to Israel. He struck it down, putting everyone in it to the sword, and left no survivors in it. He treated Libna's king as he had the king of Jericho. From Libna, Joshua and all Israel with him crossed to Lachish. They laid siege to it and attacked it. The Lord handed Lachish over to Israel, and Joshua captured it on the second day. He struck it down, putting everyone in it to the sword, just as he had done to Libna. At that time, King Horam of Gezer went to help Lachish, but Joshua struck him down along with his people, leaving no survivors. Then Joshua crossed from Lachish to Eglon and all Israel with him. They laid siege to it and attacked it. On that day, they captured it and struck it down, putting everyone in it to the sword. He completely destroyed it that day, just as he had done to Lachish. Next, Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They captured it and struck down its king, all its villages, and everyone in it with the sword. He left no survivors, just as he had done in Eglon. He completely destroyed Hebron and everyone in it. Finally, Joshua turned toward Debir and attacked it. And all Israel was with him. He captured it, its king and all its villages. They struck them down with a sword and completely destroyed everyone in it, leaving no survivors. He treated Debir and its king as he had treated Hebron and as he had treated Libna and its king. So, Joshua conquered the whole region. The hill country, the Negev, the Judean foothills, and the slopes, with all their kings, leaving no survivors. He completely destroyed every living being, as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua conquered everyone from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, and all the land of Goshen as far as Gideon. Joshua captured all these kings and their land in one campaign, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp of Gilgal. Let's pray together. Oh Lord and our God, we ask that you would help us, please, by your Spirit, to be attentive to this word, this hard word, this difficult word. Lord, silence the competing voices that war for our attention and enable us to hear your voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. Lord, would you give us grace to believe and to obey? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. In, in 1895, before the Royal Society of New Zealand, George Vernon Hudson declared war against an early sunset. Hudson was an entomologist who was said to have amassed the finest collection of New Zealand insects ever formed by any one person. But he had become frustrated because dusk came early in summer so that it interfered with his evening bug-collecting rounds. His day job was at the post office. And Hudson figured the problem might be solved if the clock were advanced two hours in the summer and then shifted back in the winter when he wasn't bug hunting. He explained in his proposal, in this way the early morning daylight would be utilized and a long period of daylight leisure would be made available in the evening for cricket, gardening, cycling, or any other outdoor pursuit desire. 
But the society mocked his idea. They acknowledged that it offered some benefits, but insisted that calling the hours different would not make any difference in the time. It was out of the question to think of altering a system that had been in use for thousands of years and found by experience to be the best. And yet, eventually, Hudson's plan gained acceptance around the world, and today he is credited as the inventor of daylight saving time. Hudson had fought a battle against dust and won. Now, I don't know how you feel about daylight saving time. If you're a night owl, maybe you share in Hudson's victory. If you're an early riser, perhaps you view it as a defeat to productivity. But either way, Hudson's victory over dust affects each of us today. Well, in our passage this morning, we see some of these themes of warfare, of defeat, and victory. God orchestrates his own kind of daylight saving time to fight for his people and bring them victory. And so the main point that I want us to see this morning is this. The Lord is a warrior. So escape defeat and judgment by sharing in the victory God has won for his people through Jesus. And I want us to look at this passage under four themes. The summons to war, verses 1 through 7. The sovereign warrior, verses 8 through 15. The slaughter of the wicked, in verses 16 through 43. And then we'll end by thinking about the significance for Christian warfare. So first, the summons to war. Look again at verse 1. Now King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had captured Ai and completely destroyed it, treating Ai and its king as he had Jericho and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were living among them. So Adonai Zedek and his people were greatly alarmed because Gibeon was a large city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were warriors. Therefore, King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem sent word to King Hoham of Hebron, King Hiram of Jarmuth, King Bethia of Lachish, and King Jadir of Eglon, saying, Come up and help me. We will attack Gibeon, because they have made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. And so the five Amorite kings advanced, the joint forces advanced with all their armies, besieged Gibeon, and fought against it. Now, if you recall from last week, chapter 9 began by telling us of an alliance of Canaanite tribes who unite to stop Israelites' advance. <clears throat> the Gibeonites, however, who we find occupy four strategic cities near Jerusalem in the middle of the country, they decide to take a different approach. And they dupe Joshua. Right? They pretend to come from a faraway land, weary and worn out, and they ask Israel to make a treaty with them. And Israel, we read, failed to seek the Lord's decision. Now God had commanded judgment for all the Canaanites, but Israel made a treaty with Gibeon anyway. And when Israel found out the truth they made, Gibeon served them, but they kept their oath to let them live. And now here in chapter 10, we get to see the far-reaching consequences of that covenant. Word spreads quickly about the treaty between Israel and Gibeon, and it reaches... Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. And he's alarmed. And he says, man, Gibeon's larger than Ai. They're all warriors. And they made a treaty with Israel? We're going to need help. We're going to need lots of help. And so Adonai Zedek calls four more local gangsters, and they form a coalition to try to take down Gibeon. And so now... The brand new treaty between Gibeon and Israel 
was about to be tested. Now, although Joshua was the principal threat, the Allied armies planned to attack the Gibeonites, who had made peace and sided with Joshua. And friends, this is a common strategy of the world and Satan today. Being incapable of mounting an attack, a direct assault against our greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, they instead attack those who have made peace with him. God's people are the object of the world's aggression. And here's another example. Now, for their part, the Gibeonites wake up to find Adonai Zedek and his cronies marching on their city, and they type out some urgent emails to Joshua at his headquarters in Gilgal. Notice their cry for help in verse 6. Don't give up on your servants. Come quickly and save us. Help us. For all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined forces against us. It's an emergency call. It's an SOS asking for Joshua to fulfill the obligations of the covenant that he just ratified with them and to now come to their rescue. And you may recall that in the ancient world, covenants often involved a stronger and a weaker party. The stronger would promise to protect the weaker in exchange for their loyalty. And here, Gibeon, the weaker party, calls upon Joshua for salvation. Save us. On the grounds of the covenant, they appeal for help. And the question is, what will Joshua do now? On the grounds of the covenant, will he arise to help? The Gibeonites, remember, had lied to him. They had tricked Israel into this forbidden alliance. And what's more, back in chapter 9, verse 18, we learned that the people of Israel were pretty unhappy about this alliance with the Gibeonites. Joshua's approval rating had taken a a huge hit in the polls the day he signed that treaty. But now the Amorites have turned on the Gibeonites. And maybe this will take care of the whole naughty problem. It certainly would be a convenient way to get rid of these pesky Gibeonites, right? Just to let Adonai, Zedek, and those other kings have at it, right? Maybe there was perhaps a temptation to rationalize. See here, the hand of providence. Look, God must really want the Gibeonites gone after all. Why else would this be happening? Let's just let the Amorites wipe them out. And perhaps we might understand, if not condone, the political expediency of that situation. And if Joshua did precisely that. But look at what he does in verse 7 instead. So Joshua and all his troops, including all his best soldiers, came from Gilgal. Joshua keeps his covenant promise. He and his army come from Gilgal to help Gibeon. Verse 9 even paints the dramatic picture of Israel's heroic march through the night from Gilgal in order to defend Gibeon. That's a march, by the way, of 22 miles moving uphill almost the entire way. It's a remarkable moment. Not only does he honor the covenant made in Joshua 9, but he puts his army, even his best soldiers, into harm's way to respond. And in these actions, we see a model of how people of faith, when threatened, cry out, Jesus. And we see in Joshua's actions the way Jesus protects his people and fights for them with his best resources. And so Joshua coming to Gibeon's defense illustrates a beautiful gospel truth. They are being threatened because of their covenant relationship with Joshua. The enemy could not get to Joshua, and so they came against those who had made peace with Joshua. 
And because of the covenant, Joshua was obligated to their protection. Now, undoubtedly, the world hates Jesus Christ. But because it cannot get to him, it takes out its hatred against those with whom Christ has a covenant relationship, his church. Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised if the world hates you because it hated him first. And pray for God to give you confidence to cry out to him for help, knowing that Christ is our guaranteed protector, our stronger partner, and in union with him, we are secure. But if God is for us, who can be against us? And so we see in verses 1 through 7, a summons to war. Joshua rises to defend Gideon. And it's a picture of how the Lord Jesus rises to defend his covenant people. Now, second, I want us to see the sovereign warrior. Actually, this is a theme that runs throughout the chapter, as we see the grace of God who fights for his people. But it comes especially to the fore in verses 8 through 15. So as Joshua arrives in Gibeon, we begin to wonder, how will Israel triumph over so many kings at once? It is one thing to defeat those individual cities like Jericho and Ai, but it's quite another to defeat a league of cities all conspiring to destroy them. How do you take down a super king? Well, you need a superhero. Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. What an encouragement. (laughs) Joshua, don't be afraid of these guys. I got them. They're not going to beat you. I've already guaranteed the win. And the Lord reminds Joshua, he's a divine warrior. Therefore, they did not need to fear. By the way, that's almost a quotation of the promise God gave, God gave to Joshua at the very beginning of the conquest. In chapter 1, the Lord told Joshua to be strong and courageous and that no one could stand before him. That is what God's people usually need. Dale Ralph Davis reminds us. Not new truth but old truth freshly applied to their current needs. Church, that's what we need. Old truth freshly applied to our current needs. But notice the balance of this battle. In verse 9, the the narrative alternates back again to Joshua and his army. They march through the night from Gilgal to spring a surprise attack on the Amorites outside the walls of Gideon just as day begins to break. And then verse 10, we're back with the Lord. Right? The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them through the ascent of Bethlehem, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Machedah. Well, here's the point, right? Which, which is it? Was it Israel or was it the Lord? And the answer, of course, is that it was both. Right? It was Israel and it was the Lord. Obviously, it was Israel who did the chasing and the fighting. Right? The, the Amorites were in a panic about Israel. And yet, it was all the Lord's doing. Right? The Lord threw them into a panic. The Lord chased them. And the Lord struck them. Verse 11 even tells us how he did it. As they fled before Israel, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth Horon all the way to Azekah, and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. And the passage tells us the so what, the conclusion we're meant to draw from all of this. Look at the end of verse 14. 
What is it we are being taught? The Lord fought for Israel. Or again, in verse 42, at the end of the chapter, Joshua captured all these kings and their land in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Our God is a warrior. He's not a weakling. He's not a wimp. He's not shy and retiring. He is strong and mighty, the sovereign warrior who fights for his people. Now make no mistake, Israel fought. But they would have fought and lost. They would have fought and died unless the Lord fought for them. Now we too, all of us here, if we are Christians, we too are engaged in a war. In the warfare of the Christian life. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, but we are in a war against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. And we must fight. There is no passivity, no quietism, no let go and let God possible in the daily combat zone of the Christian life. Every believer is a soldier in the army of the Lord of armies. We are not to fight as one beating the air. We are to put on the full armor of God. We must kill our own sins, take every thought captive, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That is our calling. And yet, Joshua 10 reminds us, we are not to fight that spiritual war, believing even for a moment that its outcome rests on the strength of our own arm or the cleverness of our own strategy. The teaching of this passage is that the Lord fights for his people. And there's a wonderful word of comfort and reassurance for us in that phrase, isn't there? The Lord fights for his people. The Lord fights for us. The Lord fights for you. We are not in an equal contest with the enemy of our souls. In fact, not only does the Lord fight for his people in the Lord Jesus Christ, remember, he has already won the war. Now, some of us, I suspect, feel defeated beaten down by the many skirmishes with sin and Satan that we have lost along the way. We feel very keenly our weaknesses. We remember how often temptation has swept away our defenses, like a sudden and massive enemy assault of our hearts. And maybe slowly we've begun to believe the lie that actually the outcome hangs in the balance in our case and that the success of our conquest remains in doubt. Brothers and sisters, it is not so. The Lord fights for His people. Have you forgotten it? I wonder if perhaps we need to discover that old truth once more for ourselves, freshly applied to our current needs. You are not on your own, fighting as best as you can, left to the limited resources of your own strength. No, if you are a child of God, if you are in covenant with Christ by faith, then the Lord fights for you, and in Christ, he has already secured the victory. Well, picking up in verse 12, we get this remarkable commentary. Look at it. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon, over the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jashar? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man 
because the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to camp at Gilgal. Now there have been numerous attempts to reconcile this account with what we know of astronomic physics. Some have tried to explain this as an eclipse. Others as poetic imagery. Some as an exploitation of Canaanite omens, to name a few. But each of these proposals falls short of what the text actually says. This day and this battle were utterly unique. God created the universe by speaking it into existence. He gave the sun and moon their job descriptions. And he is perfectly able to prolong the day without causing natural disasters or scientific contradictions. Daylight saving time can manipulate the clocks, but God can manipulate the cosmos whenever he wants, however he wants, anytime he wants. But did you notice what grabs the interest of the narrator? What excites him is not what happened to the sun and moon that day. What got him excited is written in verse 14. Do you see it? There's been no day like it before or since. Not because the sun stood still or the moon stopped shining. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man. Because the Lord fought for Israel. God listened when Joshua prayed. It was a day unlike any other day. Because Joshua prayed and God listened to him. Prayer, Joshua 10 teaches us, stops the moon and the sun in the sky. Prayer, wrote Ian Bounds, is the greatest of all forces because it honors God and brings Him into active aid. Church, prayer is not the least we can do. Prayer is not the last thing we should do after we've exhausted all other possible responses to our needs. Prayer ought to be our first and best response. Because prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful not because prayer is anything in itself, but because it takes hold of the promises of God in Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit. And nothing can thwart the design of the triune God in accomplishing all of His holy will. In fact, we really, you know, we really don't believe in the power of prayer. We believe in the power of God. And that is why we pray. The Lord listens to a man. Think about that. The author says, there's been no day like it before or since. Now, importantly, the time stamp does not carry today. It carries only to the time of the author of Joshua. So the statement highlights the uniqueness of this prayer. In the Old Testament, it is on par with only the likes of Moses, right, who spoke with God face to face. Or David, who was singularly called God's Son. However, in the New Testament, Jesus has promised that all who are united to Him by faith has the same access that He has to the Father. Jesus said, Whatever you ask in My name, I will do it. And what a privilege we have been given to have the ear of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to have the Spirit of Christ who intercedes for us with groans too deep for words when we don't know what to pray for as we ought. And to have an intercessor at the right hand of the Father, even the risen Christ Himself, who takes our feeble, confused, sin-stained prayers and mixes them with His own and presents them to the Father as He pours out His petitions on our behalf. Right, when we put this 
and its full, glorious, Trinitarian content. Is there anything more blessed, more powerful than the ministry of prayer and the privilege of prayer? You see, what was unique to Joshua is now ubiquitous to the Christian. But it is by no means uninteresting that we can enter into the presence of God and know that He hears us. That is an unfathomable gift. Joshua's prayer moves heaven and earth, and so does every prayer that is led by the Spirit, addressed to the Father, mediated by the Son. And so the Lord heard Joshua's wartime prayers. You know, prayer is, in Ephesians 6, part of our spiritual warfare. It's our wartime walkie-talkie. We use it to communicate with our general and call for help on the front lines. So when you're battling temptation or discouragement or anxiety, Pray, right? We have a sovereign God who hears and can do something about it. J.I. Packer writes in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. How then do you pray? Do you ask God for your daily bread? Do you thank God for your conversion? Do you pray for the conversion of others? If the answer is no, I can only say that I do not think you are yet born again. But if the answer is yes, well, that proves that whatever side you may have taken in debates on this question in the past, in your heart, you believe in the sovereignty of God no less firmly than anyone else. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we are all agreed. The Lord is our sovereign warrior. He listens to His troops and gives us everything we need for battle. And so avail yourself of His help seen the summons to war and the sovereign warrior. Now, thirdly, we see the slaughter of the wicked. Look at verse 16. Now the five defeated kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Machedah. It was reported to Joshua, the five kings have been found. They are hiding in the cave at Machedah. Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and station men by it to guard the king. But as for the rest of you, don't stay there. Pursue your enemies and attack them from behind. Don't let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has handed them over to you. So Joshua and the Israelites finished inflicting the terrible slaughter on them until they were destroyed, although a few survivors ran away to the fortified city. The people returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Machedah, and no one dared to threaten the Israelites. And then we read, after executing the five kings, Joshua and all Israel capture the southern cities and completely destroy them and everyone in it, as the Lord had commanded, over and over again. Verses 28 to 39, we hear the constant refrain of Joshua capturing and completely destroying as the Lord handed over the city and its king. And notice, notice the conclusion of these two sections. The Lord fought for Israel, and Joshua and all Israel returned to Gilgal. You see it in verses 14 to 15, and you see it again almost verbatim in verses 42 to 43. Now, what do we make of this Canaanite extermination? Why did God command Israel to treat these people this way? Friends, these verses will only make sense if we read them with biblical lenses. If we come to this passage with modern lenses, we won't see properly. And so here are five biblical lenses to help us to see what's going on here. Lens number one, the patience God 
chose. Consider God's words to Abraham while he was in Canaan. God promised Abraham that his offspring would spend 400 years in slavery in a foreign land, and then they would come out with many possessions. And in Genesis 15, verse 16, God says, In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That's a remarkable statement. God gave the Amorites 400 years to repent. Their guilt had not yet at that time reached the breaking point. God gave them time. And so when we get to Joshua 10, 400 years later, God judges these Amorite kings and cities. These passages clearly show us the justice of God. But if that's all we see, we're missing half the vision. We ought to see the patience of God. The Amorites had 400 years to repent before their sin reached its full measure. But they never did. God gave them plenty of time. He showed great patience toward them. Lens number two, the depravity God abhors. Consider God's commands to Israel in Leviticus 18. Here's what God said to Moses. Do not follow the practices of the land of Egypt where you used to live. Or follow the practices of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You must not follow their customs. You are to practice my ordinances, and you are to keep my statutes by following them. I am the Lord your God. And then the rest of that chapter presents Israel with a countercultural sexual ethic. All kinds of detestable sexual sins are listed. And God says, because of these sins, the land is going to vomit out its residents. These offenses were true of the Canaanites. These are not basically good, reasonable, kind folks just trying to do the best they can. They were a depraved, perverted, sex-crazed culture that thought that both their brains and their worship resided between their legs. And they come under God's judgment here in Joshua 10. God abhors their depravity. Lens number three, the instrument God uses. Consider Moses' words to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. You are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promises he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Israel was the Lord's appointed instrument of judgment against the Canaanites for their depravity. And this is an act of the just judgment of God against sin. It's a matter of justice. Now, this doesn't mean that it's clean or sanitary or nice. It's just. And we see this instrumental role in other places of Scripture. Later on, unrighteous Babylon and Assyria are used by God to judge Israel. And so there's no partiality with God. He is perfectly just in all His ways. And so we need these three lenses to see what's going on here. God is being faithful to his promises. He's giving Israel the land he swore to their fathers. He's keeping his covenant. And he showed great patience toward the Amorites. Despite their depravity, he abhors. But now it's time to use Israel as his instrument to execute justice. But furthermore, consider lens number four. The strangeness of God's judgment. For all this judgment and devotion to destruction, one might get the impression that God's true delight is judging the wicked and destroying sinners. 
friends, this is anything but the case. And we know this not only because Scripture speaks often about God's mercy and love, but from Isaiah 28's commentary on the Battle of Gideon. As with all the prophets, Isaiah picks up events and places to recall what God has done in the past to speak into the present and future. And with Gideon in view, he calls attention to the fact that God will judge Canaan when he brings the Babylonians to render judgment on his people. Only this forthcoming judgment is called his strange work. Truly, the Bible presents the mercy and love of God as God's true character. Right? God is love. And judgment, we see here, is actually his strange work, his unexpected work, his unfamiliar work, especially when it is done against his covenant people, Israel. It is a work he does with zeal. There's no contradiction in God, but it is strange. As Isaiah 28, verse 21 puts it, For the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rise in wrath as at the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his unexpected work, and to perform his task, his unfamiliar task. We read elsewhere in other passages like Ezekiel that the Lord takes no pleasure in destroying the wicked, but wants all to come to repentance. And so we, we can learn that God is a God of wrath and justice, but his judgment is always in order for the purpose of doing good to his people and to demonstrate his own righteous war. And so love and mercy, we might say, are ends in themselves. But justice and wrath are always in service to some other end. Psalm 136, another text, is a good reminder of this as it recalls God's severity against Egypt for the sake of his love of Israel. And of course, all of God's actions are for the sake of his eternal praise and glory. And then lens number five, the warfare God wins. In verses 24 through 26, Joshua tells the commanders to place their feet on the necks of the enemy. The kings are then slain and hung on a tree until evening. And these are echoes of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the seed of the woman is prophesied to crush the head of the serpent. And the placing of the curse upon the seed of the serpent. Because everyone who hangs on the tree is cursed. Right? God is keeping his promise. He's making his enemies a footstool for his feet. And truly there runs through the Bible a war between God's people and God's enemies. And this war will not be resolved until the cross. Where the seed of the woman, the son of God, is bruised by the seed of the serpent. Which in turn crushes the head of Satan and his offspring. Right? But even then, this climactic event will not be fully experienced until the new creation. And until then, the enemies of God are being put under the feet of King Jesus, as Psalm 110, verse 1 describes. And so in this chapter, we see that story of seed warfare advancing. Through Joshua, God is defeating his enemies and placing his people in the promised land. And in Jesus, as a fulfillment of this pattern, we see this happening in real time. All of God's enemies are being put under his feet until the day when there are no more. Hebrews 10, verse 13 says, He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. This is our hope, and this is why we continue to cry out to Jesus, because there are still enemies that remain. And we trust in him as our refuge and our protector who will bring us safely home.
So we've seen the summons to war, the sovereign warrior, and the slaughter of the wicked. And now, church, I want to bring together some of these themes with five concluding applications for us individually and as a church. And the first application is this. Israel's history shows that they and we need God to win the battle. We've already seen in the book of Joshua how Israel was not consistently faithful to the Lord. Achan took some of the devoted things, and Israel was defeated at Ai. Joshua didn't seek the Lord's decision concerning Gibeon and was deceived. And if it were not for the Lord's intervention, Israel would have fell to the Canaanite super team. They needed the Lord in order to win. You know, the San Antonio Spurs won several NBA championships in the mid 2000s, led by an all-time great player in Tim Duncan. And after a particularly close championship victory, Coach Greg Popovich shook hands with the opposing players and explained to them, we won because we had Tim. And that's exactly what Israel could say after this unique day. They won because they had the Lord. God gave them the victory. Friends, Israel's story is our story. We do not have the ability to obey God consistently, faithfully, perfectly. We cannot fight the serpent's minions on our own. We need God to win the battle for us. The only way we can escape defeat from our enemy and the curse of death is by sharing in the victory God has won for us. And that leads to application number two. Jesus Christ defeated Satan, sin, and death through his death and resurrection for us. Christ's death on the cross was not defeat. It was victory. Colossians 2.15 says that when Jesus laid down His life on that tree, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Him. Whatever hold Satan thought he had over Jesus in that moment, Christ disarmed Him. And then Jesus defeated sin and death through his resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, God has put everything under Christ's feet. Like those captains, right, who put their feet on the necks of those teams. So Christ will rule and reign until every enemy, including the last enemy, death, will be under his footstool. So every enemy we face, Satan, our own sin, the penalty of death, Jesus defeated. He conquered. We couldn't do it, so He did it for us. He won the victory. We were under a curse like those Canaanites, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And one day, Jesus will return again as the divine warrior, riding on a white horse with a sword in His mouth to put an end to Satan and his enemies once and for all. But that leads to application number three. Those who refuse to repent and continue in their rebellion will not escape God's righteous wrath. In Revelation 16, that seventh bold judgment reveals enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, falling from the sky on people. And the people blaspheme God for the plague of hail because that plague is extremely severe. Friends, this is the Lord threw hailstones upon the Amorites to judge them for their sins. So these hailstones serve as a promise of future judgment. God is a merciful God. 
And in love, he sent his son to save us. But if we persist in our rebellion and our sin, then we can only expect his just judgment. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ alone as your Savior and Lord, then I plead with you to do so today, even now. Because right now you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. And one day your sin will reach its full measure. And God's patience will end and you will not have any more time. The judgment will come and it will crush you and it will never end. And I don't want that for you. So I plead with you, not as one who is righteous, but as one who himself has found mercy. Lay down your rebellion. God has provided at great cost to himself a way of escape from destruction. Do you remember Rahab, the harlot who epitomized Canaanite depravity? She heard the testimony about the Lord. She confessed him as the only God, and she took refuge in him. Won't you do the same? If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that He is Lord, take refuge in Him as your only hope for forgiveness of sin and eternal life, then you, my friend, will be saved. Church, application number four. Christ has already won the battle. Let's go fight. Did you notice the repeated refrain in this story? The Lord fought for Israel. The Lord handed them over. Right? God's saying, I already won the battle for you. Now go and fight. What a confidence boost. Guaranteed success. God has already won the battle. So how can we not go in to battle strong, courageous, well-equipped to conquer the enemy? And church, that is an assurance we all need to hear again and again and again. And wonderfully, it's in this moment that Joshua the first appears to us most clearly as a, as a type and picture of Joshua the second, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has won the victory. And because he has, we too have an assurance of victory. The church militant will become the church triumphant one day because Jesus has crushed Satan under his feet. As Paul promises for us one day as well in Romans sixteen twenty, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so we need to ask ourselves, upon what is my assurance as a Christian grounded? It must not be my wisdom, my strength, my convictions, my cleverness, my morality, my prayerfulness, not the good opinions of others, not the success of my ministry. For all of these are stinking sand. They are flawed, confused, inconsistent, sin-stained, weak, inadequate grounds for Christian confidence. No, my assurance and your assurance, the only sure ground of our confidence before God must be the solid rock of Christ, His obedience and blood, His triumph over sin and death and hell at the cross and the empty tomb. He is the ground of our confidence, our assurance. And He comes to us today again to say to you, believer, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous to show the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Here's the unmovable foundation of your hope, believer. It's not that you are adequate for the task of living for God, of slaying sin, of fighting the good fight, of finishing the race. You are not. Neither am I. But Joshua the second, even our Lord Jesus, did. Did we in our own strength confide? 
our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. We ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And finally, the one who wins the victory gets the glory. The reason why God fights the battle and wins the victory for his people is so that he gets the glory. We escape defeat and the curse of death by sharing in the victory that God wins for us in Christ. We get the grace, but God gets the glory. And that's a marvelous blessing. And so one day Christ's mighty army, that great church of God, will stand together in a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be perfect peace. They will beat their swords and their plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And all the bitter wars shall cease. All the enemies of God will have been defeated and all evil eradicated. King Jesus will reign supreme. And all those washed in the blood of the Lamb will sing the praises of the conquering lion the one who won the victory for them on the cross, rose from the dead in triumph, ascended into heaven in majesty, sat down at the right hand of God in power, and returned for them on the clouds in glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bless you that Jesus has won the victory. He has won it. He reigns at your right hand. And even now, Father, you are making his enemies a footstool for his feet. And because he has crushed that ancient serpent, Satan, he soon will crush Satan beneath our feet also. So we rejoice that his victory will be ours. Help us to rest our confidence, our assurance, not in the strength of our own arm or the quality of our own resolve, our own cleverness, our own understanding but to rest in Him alone, in His obedience and blood, in His resurrection and reign, and in His intercession at Your right hand. Thank You for Christ. Help us, all of us, to find our refuge in Him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.